0: Welcome to episode 15 of the Operational Arch. Today we are speaking to Brigadier General Nicholson from United States Army Security Assistance Command about a wide range of topics, including foreign military sales, the recent Tiger Team report, and the impacts of foreign military sales on operational design in the military.
1: And right now the demand for US kit is, is high and rising because nothing sells like success.
0: Hello and welcome to the Operational Arch, Bridging the Gap Between Strategy and Tactics, in the official podcast of the School of Advanced Military Studies, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm Lieutenant Colonel J.D. Corliss, alongside Major Tom Haydock. With us today is Brigadier General Jason Nicholson, Commanding General of the U.S. Army Security Assistance Command. Brigadier General Nicholson is a graduate of SAMS and a current doctoral candidate in political science at the University of Utah. U.S. Army Security Assistance Command leads the Army Material Command Security Assistance Enterprise, develops and manages security assistance programs and foreign military sales, or FMS, cases to build partner capacity, supports COCOM engagement strategies, and strengthens U.S. global partnerships. As the commander, he oversees FMS cases with more than 140 countries and a total value exceeding $205 billion. Sir, thank you very much for being with us here today.
1: Hey, thank you very much and appreciate the opportunity to come on and uh, talk a little bit about uh, the operational art and, and also what my organization does in our little corner of the Army.
2: Brigadier General Nicholson recently spoke to the AMSP class of 2024 at Fort Leavenworth. Sir, we would like to continue the conversation on the U.S. Army Security Assistance Command as an organization How do you use security assistance to campaign and what lessons you've applied in your current or previous roles from your experience at SAMS? Is there anything you want to share with us, sir, right now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, for a little bit, for those unfamiliar with my organization, talk a little bit about what USASAC does overall, if that works for you. Yes, sir. Yeah, so, you know, U.S. Army Security Assistance Command manages and executes uh, security assistance programs and foreign military sales for the Army. Um, under Section 3 of the Arms Export Control Act, we, U.S. military, are able to sell defense articles, services, and training to other nations and international organizations when to do so uh, strengthens the security of the United States and promotes peace. And there's really two ways we execute for military sales in the Army. Uh, one is through nation's own funding and then through also U.S. appropriated funds. And so with these two types of funds, we we work with our partners and allies around the world to help them build the capacity and capabilities that they need to be interoperable uh, with our forces uh, as we are uh, operating in, in the global commons. Just as important to what we do is kind of why we're doing it. And really strengthening alliances uh, is at the key of what US Army Security Assistance Command does for the army and, and ultimately for the joint force. Um, you know, completely aligned, not only with the national defense strategy, the national military strategy, but also all of the geographic combatant commands, campaign plans and regional strategies. We are reinforcing our allies and partners ability uh, on the battlefield to shoot, move, communicate uh, with US forces. And and buy down the requirement for us forces abroad, quite frankly, uh, because despite being a superpower with global reach and presence, we can't be everywhere at once. And and we need allies and partners who are interoperable, uh, if not interchangeable in some cases, who can plug into our formations and fight and win uh, wars together alongside one another.
0: Sir, it sounds like uh, your program obviously has a, a breadth of range that it impacts uh, globally. So in terms of all the different programs, all the different nations that you interact with, do you, what are some of the most impactful programs that your organization oversees? So
1: I think some of the most impactful programs that we oversee are, are specifically the, um, uh, our, our foreign military sales of, of equipment and training. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you, you see some of this some of those impactful things we're doing today in the contemporary security environment is clearly we are at the forefront in providing um, our Ukrainian partners with the uh, munitions and equipment that they need um, to, uh, to defend themselves against Russian aggression. And I think that's a very impactful um, and if not a system changing war that is occurring right now. And um, the U.S. Army and the U.S. Army Security Assistance Command is at the forefront of the United States' response to that challenging security environment.
0: So that's a good segue into our, our next question. Uh, obviously, sir, a couple weeks ago, a Tiger team published its results. And uh, for the listeners out there, we'll try to uh, put a link in the show notes if they want to review the press release for that. But how did that Tiger team results about uh, you know foreign military sales and, and some security assistance affect your organization and your, your day-to-day mission?
1: Yes, so the, the Tiger team, the DOD led Tiger team, uh, and it actually, it was an interagency Tiger team because there are, are multiple um, uh, multiple uh, organizations that have kind of four military sales reform efforts going on. A- as I travel around the world, uh, and as I engage with our allies and partners, but also importantly, as I engage with our combatant commanders and theater army commanders and other senior military leaders, um, there is an appreciation for um, the complexity of the U.S.'s foreign military sales program. Um, and it's governed by a, 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 a series of laws and regulations that maybe are, are not uh, optimized always for speed of action, um, but have a very deliberate are crafted for a very deliberate um, and contemplative process that delivers capabilities to our to our allies and partners, but. As the security environment's changing, um, the interagency and the Department of Defense specifically are looking across the the foreign military sales enterprise and seeing how we can maybe determine some efficiencies and come up with a better way to maybe meet our partners and allies' needs and requirements in a more timely fashion and manner. And so this DOD FMS Tiger Team came up with about 85 action items. Um, And that sort of, uh, that that Tiger Team's uh, outputs have now kind of transitioned into um, the defense security cooperation Agency's continuous process improvement board Uh, and this is the defense security cooperation agency is the department of defense's lead organization for executing foreign military sales across the department and across the joint force Um, and and we uh, as u.s army security assistance command we execute inside the Army the foreign military sales in support of DSCA, working by, with, and through the Army Secretariat, through the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense Exports and Arms Control, um, and Armaments Cooperation, sorry. And so these 85 actions right now, the Army is the actual uh, Office of Primary Responsibility for six of these actions, and we're the coordinating office for about 44 of those actions. Um, And the actions in total, um, the 85 uh, identified actions in total, kind of cover seven areas for improvement. How do we prioritize partners and allies? Um, As you can imagine, this is a a tremendously difficult thing to do um, when we have a global portfolio and we have global allies and partners who have immediate requirements and needs for their security situations. And these are everyone from countries like Ukraine that are involved in active conflict, to countries like uh, Japan, who we are building for deterrence, who are working with to improve their deterrence posture. FMS administration, how are we doing on executing these cases? Are we as efficient? Are we as cost? uh, Are we doing things as in timely and cost benefit fashion as we can to ensure that our partners and allies and even US appropriated funds uh, are are accounted for and uh, conserved appropriately? How do we execute non-programs of record? It's easier to deliver a program of record. So think uh, an M1 Abrams, an A64 Apache, something that the Army, an article that the Army keeps in its inventory and is using for the foreseeable future. When our allies buy those pieces of equipment, they know that they are buying a piece of equipment that the U.S. Army and U.S. government is going to maintain and sustain for the out years. But there's a lot of capabilities out there that are resident inside the United States sort of defense industry that perhaps the US military is buying on one or two offs or we're not purchasing at all because we already have a piece of equipment that meets that need or requirement. But our allies and partners need that particular piece of gear or or training, etc. And through non programs of record, they're able to purchase that. And, And these can become more complex because they're often to fit boutique needs or requirements. Uh, and uh, defining how we solve those requirements how we provide a technical solution to that problem uh can be can be very challenging and and when it comes to you know sharing of military technologies there, there are fewer things that are are kind of more sensitive or more germane to a country's sovereignty, right? And so technical security and exportability and working with the interagency and kind of the broader intelligence community uh, and other stakeholders that are involved in um, everything from ensuring that sensitive technologies are not transferred or put in a position where they can be exploited to protecting intellectual property rights. So ensuring that we have a very good regime to, to, to secure our technology and ensure that it's exported in accordance with the laws of the country. And then foreign disclosure ensuring that you know the the technologies uh the equipment the doctrine that we've developed to employ this equipment we're sharing it that we're able to share it quickly with our allies and partners so that they can they can inculcate it uh, or that they can adjust their own doctrine because you know it, it, you think about as we're modernizing equipment and we're modernizing our own doctrine right now and you, you see this with everything from multi-domain operations to SFabs. We have partners and allies around the world that are trying to recreate those capabilities in their own formations and they're looking at us and looking at our doctrine and where we're going, um, not just the end items and the kit, but also that intellectual capital. And so ensuring that we can share that with our allies and partners and then uh, the defense industrial base capacity, you know, it, there's a bit of a physics problem when it comes to the uh, to our defense industrial base. Can we meet not only the US Army's needs? for modernization, sustaining its current equipment, but building the next generation of combat equipment and, and military equipment, but also meet the demands and needs of our partners and allies around the world. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about this further, but uh, you know, this is a real physics problem for us. And a, a, as you can see, um, and anybody who's been reading the news about the war in Ukraine, um, for example, the requirements for munitions, whether it's dumb munitions, like the 155 millimeter artillery rounds, or it's uh, guided munitions of any variety. you know, There is a finite production capacity issue. And I think you find that across the Western world, in fact, I would say broadly internationally, the manufacturer of munitions and the manufacturer of military, especially on the high end, military goods and articles, um, Worldwide, we have less capacity and production ability uh, than we did in the past, and and this is, this is something that shapes our environment when it comes to working with our allies and partners. And then lastly, uh, contracting timelines, um, working within the, the constructs that are our legal administrative contracts for how we contract. Uh, equipment, and how we sell it, and how we sequence that production with U.S. Army requirements as well, and then developing our workforce. Um, You know, we are a people-first organization. The Army strength is its people. And no less than the rest of society, we're in a war for talent to ensure that we've got the best people with the right skill sets and the right experiences driving this entire enterprise forward so that we're achieving a decisive military advantage.
2: Thank you, sir. Yeah, that was a very holistic answer, and it covered a lot of different aspects and really brought them together well. Thank you for that, sir. Sir, to narrow it down a little bit, you touched on this in your explanation a minute ago, but how does FMS affect our allies and partners?
1: So first, I think um, you know it, it extends our political relationships around the world, and it shows that the United States is invested in that country's security. And it can be anything from, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars worth of personal protective equipment to billions of dollars of our most capable, uh, complex and sophisticated weapons systems. But in every one of those cases, the US is showing resolve and support to our allies and partners. And, And I think it's important to think about what this really means because dollar dollar amounts and equipment numbers do not necessarily always equal strategic impact and and there are cases you know i have numerous examples i could use around the world of places where relatively low cost kind of mundane common items achieve a very deliberate and strategic result for the united states with a timely delivery in support of an allies or partner security needs that say, Poland purchasing several hundred M1A2 tanks does as well in in Western Europe. So, you know, that is really, to me, it extends that political relationship and and ultimately builds deterrence and buys down the requirements for U.S. forces for the Joint Force Commanders out there at the Geographic Combatant Commands. And I think, you know, just to bring it back to kind of the, the most salient example that we see in contemporary security today in the case of Ukraine, you know, Support from the international community has been key. Absolutely key to providing Ukraine, the tools it needs to resist Russia, the Russian invasion. Uh, and at the heart of that is the, the vast amounts of uh, arms and material that the United States has donated. And when you look inside what the United States has donated, the, the, the majority of that is coming out of the army as well uh, in security assistance to Ukraine and that's working, you know, at unprecedented speeds across the Defense Industrial Base, across the Army's Organic Industrial Base, across all COMPOs, with our Joint Force partners as well in some cases, uh, to deliver these uh, materials to the battlefield to the point of need. You know, at our simplest level, we know that foreign military sales and security assistance increases our partners' capabilities. But in many ways, as you look around the world, particularly we look at, you know, NATO, uh, we look at places like Southeast Europe, a lot of countries going back to the Cold War, right, had legacy relationships with the former Soviet Union. And as many of these countries have transitioned to democratic governments, and they've joined the alliance, or they've become allies of the United States, or they've become close partners of the United States, they've looked to transition and modernize their militaries, whether it's through equipment, or whether it's through how their staffs are organized. And at the A large pillar of that has been the U.S. Army's involvement in delivering defense articles and goods and services through foreign military sales to help these countries, these transitioning countries, achieve the standards that they need to not only be better militarily and more interoperable with U.S. forces, but to be more fully capable alongside other coalition partners as well. Because we know at the end of the day that, that the strength of our partners really Correlates directly to the strength of our coalition and, and what the United States brings, I think, is is that broad coalition of, of partners and allies around the world based on shared values.
2: Yes, sir. Follow on question for you, sir. With supporting 140 countries from body armor to patriots and everything in between, sir, in terms of security assistance, do you see any issues with throughput? Is there more demand than support or vice versa?
1: You know this is uh, a this is this is something that keeps me up at night and and we talked a little earlier uh, about in the seven areas that the uh, the army owns for the defense security cooperation agency as areas for improvement and kind of this the fms tiger team that the department of defense has put in place the defense industrial base capacity you know very deliberately kind of since the end of the cold war there has been a, a, a drive, uh, not only in Congress, but in industry and in the department to consolidate uh, the defense industrial base and, and, and the manufacturing uh, and the defense manufacturers. That consolidation has resulted in the thinning out of some of the secondary and tertiary manufacturers who are vital to the defense industrial base and providing you know boutique parts that go into high-end equipment. Um, because with with fewer primes delivering complete systems to the U.S. government, you have less need for those that secondary and tertiary supply chain. And so, I think that's a that capacity, that ability to really manufacture at scale is, is something that is playing out in the defense industrial base. That you see playing out in other sectors of the American economy and the American um, uh, business and corporate life as well. That's something I think that. Uh, you see the department taking some very solid steps to address whether it's uh, special defense acquisition funds to allow to use as seed money to jumpstart um, increased production lines or multi-year appropriations for munitions is another recent one. But all of these uh, impact our ability to service demand, and and right now the demand for U.S. kit is is high and rising because nothing sells like success. And when our partners and allies see the success of our Patriot missile systems in intercepting uh, Russian hypersonic weapons, when they see the success of the HIMARS uh, on the battlefield, uh, when they see the success of our rotary platforms in Iraq and Afghanistan, our own military operations, nothing sells like seeing success on the battlefield. And and I think that in terms of, you know, maybe being the victims of our own success, um, we're, we're having to deal with some of the fallout of that right now. Uh,
0: thank you, General. Uh, you've given us a, a lot of, of, of different aspects of your job, and, and in one word, daunting seems to come to mind. But if you had to pick one of these challenges... I would add fun. fun. I would add fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but if I, of all the different challenges you've mentioned so far, and I'm sure there's even more to go into... But what would you pick is one of the greatest challenges that you face or your organization faces on uh, today or the day to day or upcoming?
1: You know, for me, that that's an easy one to answer. And and I think it will not be unfamiliar to anyone listening to the podcast, but we're in a war for talent. Um, you know, both inside the Army with our, our, our service members and our, our Department of the Army civilians, uh In ensuring that we attract the right people who are already serving to come work in our organization, but also more broadly speaking in 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 the United States economy. I mean, the the people that we are looking for uh, with the skill sets and the experiences they have are also in high demand, not only in the defense industrial base, but in other parts of uh, our economy where, you know, which which is on the high-end manufacturing, export, aerospace, um, boutique manufacturing, um, there is a lot here, uh, a lot of great work being done uh, by people who have a tremendous amount of technical know-how that is really hard to replicate. And we're in, a ta- we're in a war for that talent every day to keep it inside our organization. And I don't think that is something that would be unfamiliar to any leader listening to this podcast out there.
0: I appreciate it. Uh- You came out here a few weeks ago uh, and able to talk to us one-on-one, and you offered us a thought experiment on how to use security assistance in campaigning and campaign planning. Uh, Obviously, we are having those discussions in our classroom, but uh, for the the listeners out there that that don't have the benefit of being at SAMS, what information would you say is required for planners to kind of incorporate security assistance into their own operational planning?
1: Well, first, for those who don't have the benefit or good fortune to be at Sam's, I would highly recommend they apply and and, and pursue it. Um, but um, you know, for incorporating security assistance into campaigning and operational planning, I, I think there's a there's a there's a few things, few tenets that have to, we have to understand. Right off the cuff, we have to understand our allies and partners' capabilities, what they currently have today. And what they can execute with on the battlefield and then second to that is we have to understand what capabilities do they look to develop in the near future. And so once we have kind of the the ends of that spectrum we can plan between the two of them. What? How do we bridge the gap from where they are today to where they want to go tomorrow Um, and then and then help them build along a series of. Not only acquisitions for the hard kit, but the training and then ultimately the exercises that are going to allow them to bring a new system or technology into their force, or maybe a new tactic, technique, or procedure, bring that into their force, inculcate it in their force, exercise it at echelon, and then ultimately exercise it multilaterally with the United States, other allies, and partners, so that what we are delivering over time becomes a holistic capability and and for 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 officers who are working as campaign planners or operational planners on staffs at various levels. um, I think having a very granular understanding of of how we design those OAI's, those operations activities and investments that a command at whatever echelon you're working can make with allies and partners or meter so that we have measurable and we have achievable goals. So that commanders can say, if my operational requirement is three partnered brigades or battalions, whatever echelon, you may need, we need a partner ally to produce this capability to operate with us. Because this is a place where I'm going to assume risk and not put us forces, or I'm going to bring less of this force. Then we can go backwards plan and say, okay, if we need this force to deck tomorrow. Then we can do these things today to get them from where they are now to where they need to go. And again, I I think it it incorporates multiple things that aren't necessarily or traditionally accounted for in campaign planning, specifically on the acquisition uh, timelines of the foreign military sales process and understanding when we deliver capabilities, or when we have, when that capability becomes IOC, and then how we move it to FOC, and then how we start to exercise it at echelon and in conjunction with either US forces or other allies and partners.
2: Sir, yeah, thank you very much for that. Sir, as we sit here right now, the application process and the application period is open for those that are interested in SAMS, and of course SAMS will be here next year for those that want to attend in the future. So for the company-grade officer or young field-grade officer who's out there in the force right now or at CGSC and is on the fence about applying to SAMS or not, what would you say to them, sir, and then what has been the value of SAMS to you in your career?
1: Well, if someone is on the fence about applying to SAMS, uh, I, I would push them over it and say, do it. Take the time to invest in yourself. You know, it, we are very privileged and uniform to have the opportunity to come out of sort of the workforce and spend not just a year or a few months at the Command & General Staff College where we can reflect on a decade or a decade plus of professional experiences and think about what are we going to do and how are we going to move to that next that organizational and operational level of leadership and military operations but we get another year to do that in SAMS and I think that anytime the army offers you the ability to self-select into something and invest in yourself absolutely jump on that opportunity I, I think SAMS is a wonderful program for me the value has been and I didn't come through the traditional SAMS I came through ASP3 which is slightly different But I think all three of Sam's programs ultimately deliver a very similar experience to to all of the students. Right? You're going to be pushed intellectually to the to your limits. Absolutely, without a doubt. And I think anybody who's gone through either of the three Sam's programs would agree with that. You will come out a better writer and briefer on the other side, 100% without a doubt. And I think both of those things alone uh, are, are strong selling points but also I, I think for me what i drew what i took away from not only my sam's experience but but certainly the the kind of more extended asp3 experience in my doctoral coursework and comprehensive exams was expanding your perspectives whether that's with civilian counterparts and interagency fellows or joint force officers or allies and partners but expanding your perspectives and, and teaching in new ways and new perspectives to which you can approach problem solving or from which you can approach problem solving. Because you know, I think that a lot of people from the outside of the military, they, they think about military problem solving, they think about military thought and, and, and folks tend to default to believing it might be rigid. And I think most of this having come through some sort of either command and general staff college or SAMS or other educational experience at that kind of field grade officer transition point, know that it's not rigid and there's a lot of room for experimentation there's a lot of room for initiative and and i think that that all of that together kind of how do you approach problem solving and developing a unique perspective of how you come at solving problems uh, will make us better better staff officers better commanders better leaders better better leaders inside our army and inside the joint forces as as well
0: all right general uh... Appreciate all your comments today. So we're gonna we're gonna close up with with two kind of big questions that we're hoping to be kind of scripted for all of our guests this year. And the first is going to be what is your personal definition of operational art? And the second, and maybe this is a little bit easier is what are you currently reading? Or what are you listening to? And what would you recommend us to read as we, uh, you know, with all of our free time here at Sam's? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah i i i always hesitate to recommend a book to anyone in sam's because i know that's the last thing they probably want put on their plates another book but uh you know i think uh i do believe that uh, leaders are readers to some point so uh, i look forward to talking about that one um but you know to go to your to go to your first question about you know how, how would i define the operational art I, I was thinking about this you know i, I think for me learning how to use or employing the four elements of time space means and purpose to create a position of military advantage over our adversaries while committing minimal mistakes and accepting risk is really how I would define operational art and and there's a reason that we call it art and not science um, because we could We could tell four people to look at the same problem, come up with four different answers and we may have four successful answers. And and for me, I I think really what's critical is kind of understanding that making minimal mistakes is a key part of it because you're going to make mistakes and just accepting that there will be mistakes, but doing so within within levels of acceptable risk. I, I think that's that's crucial. That's what our commanders expect us to be able to lay out for them. And when it comes to COA development uh, and, and how we execute mission analysis in support of campaigning or
0: operational plans. So do you have a, a book recommendation for us, sir?
1: I, I do, I do indeed. So I, I, I'm actually always reading about two or three books at a time. And um, I, I literally just finished about two days ago a great book called Lakota America by Pekka Himalayan is a Finnish uh, a Finnish historian of American history who is currently at Oxford University and he is sort of um, takes the narrative of the frontier wars uh, between the Sioux nation and the United States military and the United States real large really and kind of turns it on the head and talks about how in fact two competing colonial empires basically slammed into each other on the Great Plains in the mid to late 1800s and had this incredible conflict that we later came to know as the Indian or Frontier Wars. I I think it's a great book that talks about all of the things that, uh, you know, uh, sort of budding strategists and operational thinkers need to consider when it comes to logistics, international relations, you know, lines of operation military and political uh, strategies to achieve a military political goal just a really tremendous book that sort of looks at american history particularly the the frontier wars and the indian wars in the late 1800s in a completely new light to me great perspective and and i found it very very rewarding and then you know what i'm listening to right now is a great podcast uh, it's called how i built this it's by uh, npr and, um, you know, a lot of the people on this podcast are entrepreneurs uh, and I just listened to one today while I was out running uh, and it was by the, the gentleman who uh, basically brought Tetris to Nintendo. And I'm inspired by creative thinkers who can determine innovative and new ways to bring products to market or to solve problems. Uh, Because I think that's really inherent at what we're doing in the military and and kind of the inherent to the mission of SAMS and and all three of its constituent programs. And and I think that, you know, we can learn a lot when we look outside our own narrow cylinder. And and for me, kind of how entrepreneurs approach these problems and grow markets or even create markets where none existed before is, is really fascinating. And I find that whole entire creative process around problem solving to be to be really interesting. So i recommend both those, the podcast and the book.
0: Well, General and we want to thank you for your time uh, sitting down with us today and discussing uh, what really is a very complex and I'm sure often a chaotic environment that you work in. If there's any other comments you want to make before we we close up today, and hopefully we'll see you out there in the force.
1: Thank you for the opportunity to come on today. I really appreciate it. It was great to, to meet and see most of you uh, uh, up in person in Leavenworth a, a few weeks, months ago. And hopefully we can do that again soon. You know, good luck to everybody as you head back out to the force. But also uh, good luck as you get through the next nine months or so of your studies at Sam's. I know all of you will excel and your services. And the Army in particular needs you out there and look forward to serving alongside you. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you very much, sir. And thank you for the book recommendation. We'll have to put that on the list. Uh, maybe around Christmas time or so. And also thank you for the audio uh, recommendation on that one. sir. I'll put that on my list for when I'm running either today or tomorrow.
1: The views and expressions heard here are those of the authors and do not reflect the official position or opinions of SAMS, the U.S. Army, or the U.S. government. Stay up to date on all things SAMS by checking us out on Twitter at U.S. underscore SAMS, Instagram at US.sAMS, dot SAMS, and on LinkedIn. Additionally, if you have recommendations for an episode or wish to engage with us, please email us at operationalarch at gmail.com.